Good morning. Can't believe this is the last week. Where did the time go? Well, anyway, um, well, you all know me. You know I love me some HGTV every now and then, or maybe every day, um, and I know a lot of you do too. Uh, so maybe you have noticed that um, they've been doing a lot of advertising lately for this one particular show that's called My Lottery Dream Home. Have you seen it? Well, it's a show where the host, David Bromstead, leads the mega million jackpot lottery winners around to these fabulous homes in these gorgeous locations so they can pick out um, their dream home where they can begin to live like the millionaires they now are. And I have to admit that even just the commercial for the show kind of captures my imagination a little bit and gets me dreaming. I start to kind of see myself in those lovely homes, kind of le leading a, a luxurious, sort of tranquil, um, beautiful life where everything is new and unbroken, unlike my house where I live right now. <laughs> you know, the appliances, the paint, the plumbing, I mean, everything is all brand new. But you know what? The dream of living the lottery has never given me an ounce of peace or purpose in life. How about you? But just suppose that we all kind of went in together and decided we wanted to play the lottery, um, thinking we actually might win it. And just suppose we did, like win that almost, you know, that half billion dollar thing. Um, would it really make all our dreams come true? Well, maybe some of them. <laughs> but would it really make our kids okay? Would it make our marriages better? Would it fill our emptiness? Would it give us meaning? Would it lighten our darkness? No. And yet, we dream. We dream because deep inside of us, there is this longing for something more, something better, something new. <laughs> Something secure, something lasting, in a word, something eternally perfect. We dream of it because we were actually made for it. We are, in fact, destined for it. We learned in our lesson this week from Romans 8 that we are destined for glory. And the creeds affirm what that glory really is, and it is the life everlasting. Our final statement in the Apostles' Creed is, I believe in the life everlasting. And we believe in it, by the way, not because we have scientific evidence that it exists, because we do not, and not even just because the Bible tells us so, as crucial as biblical truth is to our faith, but also because, as the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, the words of King Solomon when he wrote, God has written eternity into our hearts. And I think that means that it's part of our spiritual DNA as human beings. And so we cannot help but dream of it. Even secular artists tap into this dream without even realizing it. Lady Gaga wrote a song a few years ago called The Edge of Glory. And she was anticipating glory and earthly love, but her words reveal a much deeper longing. And so she sings, I'm on the edge of glory. I'm on the edge of something final we call life tonight. All right? All right. 
She sings more truth than she knows. Glory is something final called life. The life everlasting is the glory we are all standing on the edge to see, longing to even get a glimpse of it. And so this morning, we're going to stand on the edge of glory, and we're going to get a glimpse of what the life everlasting actually is all about. And then we can understand why it matters to us today and finally how we can keep the dream alive until it finally becomes our new reality. Believing in the life everlasting means appreciating what it is, why it matters today, and how we can live like we really believe it. Okay? So here we go. Most of us, when we say, I believe in the life everlasting, we are talking about heaven, right? And, and that is right, or at least partially right. There are actually two aspects of the life everlasting. The first is where our souls go when we die. We call it the afterlife. We sometimes call it paradise. We call it heaven. Heaven is where God dwells. Jesus said that heaven is the throne of God. And we know from lesson four that Jesus too sits enthroned at the right hand of God. Paul said that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So in a nutshell, the life everlasting is life lived in the glorious presence of God. The everlasting life is life lived in the glorious presence of God. So what is that like? What's it like to be in God's glorious presence? Well, I can only tell you how the Bible describes glory. But even so, even the biblical writers like the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel and the um, apostles John and Paul struggled to find human language adequate to describe the glory that they saw and heard in the visions that God gave them of heaven. But I want us to take a peek in John's vision in Revelation 4, 1 to 6. You can turn there if you want to. I'll have the verses up on the screens. But by the way... The word revelation in Greek is the word apocalypso. It's where we get the word apocalypse from. And it simply means to reveal or to make fully known. And in this case, it is a particular kind of revelation. The risen Lord Jesus Christ himself gave the apostle John visions of heaven and the future, and he told them to write them down so that we could know them and remember them and learn of them. As you know, most all of the book of Revelation is what we call apocalyptic literature, which means it's highly symbolic. And that's the reason we tend to shy away from it sometimes. But I want us to walk through a few of these verses together to try to glean what it is that Jesus is revealing to us about heaven. So John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a door was standing open in heaven, and the first voice, that's the voice of the risen Jesus, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Okay, so the throne of God is the central motif in the book of Revelation. And it is a continuous theme throughout the whole scriptures. And it it, it's a picture of God's majesty and his ruling authority. 
John continues, and he who sat there, that would be God, had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Okay, so jasper is a, I had to look this up, (laughs) is an opaque quartz-like stone that can appear in any color. Reds, yellows, greens, browns, sometimes blue. Carnelian are are shades of, of red and orange. And so John is trying to describe the glory of God as he sees it in terms of a rainbow of colors. He continues, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. These elders represent all the redeemed people of God throughout time who have been washed clean from their sins, indicated by their white garments. And they have become... Uh, begun to receive their promised rewards symbolized by the golden crowns. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit, the one Holy Spirit. Seven represents the number of perfection. And the sound, uh, um, uh, the roar, and the tongues of fire um, look back to when the Holy Spirit descended on the day of Pentecost. And so we've got the whole Trinity represented here in this throne room scene. And John goes on. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So in the Jewish mind, the sea has always represented danger, chaos, and evil. And so the fact that the sea around God's throne is like glass indicates that in God's presence there is order and there is peace and there is the absence of fear. Have you ever been on a lake that was so still you could see the reflection of everything around it? It's just calm. I love the way Professor and Arthur Braden Brookshire comments about this. He says, The most chaotic natural force in our world, the sea, is at ease in God's reality. And my sisters, what is true in heaven will one day be true on earth. But I'm getting ahead of myself. John goes on to describe what he is hearing in heaven, the praises of all the heavenly beings and all of the saints who surround God's throne and who are continually proclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. In other words, heaven reverberates with the sounds and the sights of glory, honor, and thanksgiving to the triune God who sits on the throne. Brilliant lights, dazzling colors, loud thunder, joyful singing. Those who live in God's presence are lost in the wonder and the beauty that is God. So I sense a need for an illustration at this point because we are stretched to the very limits of our imaginations, aren't we? So um, 
please indulge me and forgive this very earthly illustration, but how many of you have ever been to Disney World and you have seen the fireworks show at night in the Magic Kingdom? Okay, I'm kind of jealous because I haven't. But <laughs> my son Jonathan, who lives in West Palm Beach, Florida, was there a couple of years ago. He met up with my daughter and her family who were vacationing there. And um, when evening came, as night fell, they positioned themselves so they could watch the spectacle. And later, Jonathan tried to explain it to me. And he started off by saying, well, first of all, there's this castle. And I'm thinking, that's Cinderella's castle, right? Like where Prince Charming lives and where she lives with Prince Charming and, and they live happily ever after. And then he says, well, projected on the, the castle are like these, these scenes from all of your favorite Disney movies and like the fireworks and the, the laser lights and, and every, the fireworks are all timed to the music from all the movies. And, and he's just grasping for words. He goes, it's, it's just really hard to describe. But I have a picture of Jonathan and his little niece, my daughter, Julie's daughter, Madeline, who's up on his shoulders as they are watching this thing. And since a picture is worth a thousand words, I wanted to share with you their reaction to what they saw and heard. <laughs> That's a candid shot. That was not posing. If you could see the other people in that picture, they're doing the same thing. Mouths dropped open, eyes wide in awe of what they're seeing and hearing. I see wonder and amazement and utter delight. I believe this is something like what our loved ones in heaven are experiencing right at this moment. Only they're not enjoying an 18-minute lights and, you know, pyrotechnic show. They are living life right now. They are more alive than we are in the glorious presence of God, seeing their salvation stories and hearing the songs of their redemption from heaven's perspective and continually filled with wonder and amazement and delight and praise for God the Father and the Lamb who sits on the throne. But as wonder-filled as heaven is, it's not our final destiny. There is still in heaven a sense of joyful anticipation of what is yet to come. Namely, the new heaven and the new earth. This is the second aspect of the life everlasting. Theologians call it the eternal state. I love how N.T. Wright sort of humorously puts it. He goes, heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. The rest of the book of Revelation reveals the end of all things, the culmination of human history as, it know, as we know it. But most importantly, it reveals the beginning of something new. In Revelation 19, John sees heaven open again. Only this time he sees Jesus descending, returning to the earth just as he promised he would. You might recall from John's gospel, Jesus' words at the very end of his life when he was telling his disciples, he says, there are many dwelling places in my father's house. Otherwise, I would have told you because I'm going away to make ready a place for you. And if I go and make ready a place for you, I will come again and take you to be with me so that where I am, you may be too. 
Jesus was explaining his departure and his future return using the language of betrothal and wedding marriage customs of the first century uh, in the Jewish life. In those days, when a man found a woman that his heart loved and he wanted to marry, he would go to her father and he would negotiate a bride price. And he would pay that price. And and once that was paid, a marriage covenant was established. And they were regarded from that time on as husband and wife, although they did not begin to live together. They were separated for about a year, during which time the bride would prepare herself for her new role as a wife, and the groom would go back to his father's house. And he would begin to build on an addition to his father's house, a dwelling place where one day he would go back and bring his bride to live with him forever. And the analogy is obvious, isn't it? In Ephesians 5, Paul tells us that the church, those who have been united to Jesus by faith, the church is the pure and beloved bride of Christ. When he came the first time, he purchased our redemption with his own precious blood. That was our bride price. It cost him everything, and he willingly paid it. And one day he will come back and take us to our heavenly home where we will live in union with him forever. Our new home is what John saw in Revelation 21, 1 to 5, and he wrote it down. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Okay, wait, I thought the church was the bride of Christ. What's up with the city? Well, the eternal state is both a redeemed and renewed people, and it is a redeemed and renewed place. The first heaven this verse is is referring to is just the atmosphere of this earth that's going to pass away when the earth passes away. But then from the third heaven where God dwells, God himself will come and he will bring something new. John writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The word new here is a very specific Greek word that means superior in quality. It's the idea that what um, is old has become obsolete, and it needs to be replaced by something superior in kind. In other words, it's going to be a real material world, similar to the old, but different. Kind of like our resurrection bodies, as Tiffany explained last week. Recognizable, but different. I was in Denver uh, this past summer with a couple of my, um, well, my best girlfriends from childhood. We all are from Texas, but we were in Denver, and we all remarked about how different the air is there than it is here. Um, it, It seemed clearer 
um, crisper. Even our vision seemed a little bit clearer. We couldn't quite put our finger on it. And we weren't smoking the marijuana there, but <laughs> I know that's what y'all were thinking. <laughs> but I just began to wonder, is this... Is this kind of something like we're going to sense in heaven? Not that we're high, but yeah, we're high. <laughs> we'll be high on the reality that is heaven. I'm going to leave it there. <laughs> we learned from Romans 8 this week how all of creation has been groaning, waiting to be liberated from its bondage to decay and death and chaos free at last from hurricanes and earthquakes and floods and wildfires. Many people think that the new heaven and the new earth will be like Eden. I would agree with that, but with one important difference. There was a snake in that garden. <laughs> Satan, the tempter, the source of all evil. But the scripture teaches us that when Jesus comes again, before he makes everything new, he must and he will first judge and eradicate all evil from the earth so that it will not even be possible for anything other than justice and righteousness and compassion and peace to be present in the new heavens and the new earth. Satan and all of his demons and all of those who knowingly and willfully and finally reject Jesus because they love the darkness rather than the light will be separated forever from the light and the life and the presence of God. That is hell, and hell is proof that God is both just and he is good because you cannot have justice without judgment, and you cannot have true goodness without the absence of of all evil. In the new heavens and the new earth, it will finally, sorry, not be possible for us to sin against God or one another anymore because something happens. Something's going to happen when we see Jesus face to face. John describes it for us in 1 John 3, 2. He goes, dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I don't know about you, but my imagination fails again at this point. Somehow seeing the face of Jesus will be such an extraordinary experience that we will instantly be transformed finally and completely at last, we will be like him. And that means that our lives in the new heaven and the new earth will clearly and crisply reflect the light and the beauty that is God. Just imagine that your only motivation for anything you do in the new creation will be exactly what motivated Jesus when he was here on the earth, and that is love. Love that lavishly gives oneself away for the benefit of others. No prideful self-promotion, no fearful self-protection, no self-condemnation either. No comparison, no jealousy, no temptation even of dreaming of a better life. It is for this reason that God will at last make his dwelling place among his people. And that's my favorite part of the new creation. No longer will there be a heaven up there and an earth down here. 
Heaven and earth will be one because God will be with us. God wants to be with us, y'all. <laughs> That's been his eternal longing, is that he would be fully present, right smack dab in the middle of us, singing with us, rejoicing over us with singing, to borrow some words from an Old Testament prophet. So what exactly will we be doing in the new heavens and the new earth? I know my husband wants to know if there's golf there. <laughs> well, Revelation 22 gives us a couple of clues. No longer will there be any curse upon anything. For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him. And there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. Worshiping and reigning, that's what we'll be doing, and it will be far from boring. Theologian Michael Bird says, We will do in the new creation what Adam and Eve were supposed to do in Eden, reign over God's world and enjoy God forever. Braden Brookshire writes, We must not, we cannot think of the eternal state as the entrance into boredom. The arrival of the new creation is chapter one of an unending adventure story in which God's people live out a life far beyond what they could ever have imagined and far better than what they could ever have desired in this current age. I cannot wait for that. But why does all that matter now in this life? Well, as Tiffany said last week, what you believe about the future affects how you live today. Believing that the life everlasting is an abundant life lived in the glorious presence of God not only gives us hope, to endure what we endure in this life, but it gives us purpose as well. How so? What do we do while we wait? Well, let's go back to the analogy of the first century Jewish weddings. That period of time between the engagement and the wedding was a time of preparation and excitement as the time drew nearer and nearer. The groom was preparing their home and the bride was preparing herself for her wedding day. And one of the things that she did was to keep herself pure. That's because when she became betrothed to her groom, she was set apart for him alone, for his love, for his affection alone. Now you know we have a word for set apart. I hope you know it. Holy, right? We've talked about it. Jesus has claimed us as his bride and we belong to him. We are set apart for his love and his affection. And one day we will even share in his inheritance, his glory. And therefore, since we are holy, since we have been made holy by his blood, we are to live holy lives while we wait. We live now as we will live then. In the words of Paul to Titus, he said, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. A holy life is a set-apart life, set apart from sin 
and set apart to a life that honors and reflects God. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrased 1 Peter 1, 16 to 18. He said, As obedient children, let yourselves be pulled into a way of life shaped by God's life, a life energetic and blazing with holiness. God said, I am holy, you be holy. You call out to God for help and he helps. He's a good father that way. But don't forget, he's also a responsible father and won't let you get by with sloppy living. Your life is a journey you must travel with a deep consciousness of God. So I want us to understand that holiness is not just about morality, although of course it includes that. But what it mostly is is a way of being that is utterly unique, utterly different from this world, surprising even. And we have the capacity to live this way because we are new creatures in Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's the exact same language as Revelation. If you have joined your life to Jesus by faith in his blood, the blood, the bride price, then John 3 says you have been born again spiritually and your eternal life has already begun. You are new. You are substantially different in a better way. Your body is indwelled by the Holy Spirit and he empowers you to say no to those attitudes and behaviors that are not of God so that you can say yes to those things that are. Things like selflessness, generosity, kindness, humility, eagerness to do what is good, boldness to tell others of the amazing life that you have on this side of glory and what will come on the other side. We all still struggle with our old self-centered nature, don't we? But self-control the will and the ability to say no to ourselves and yes to God and to others is a fruit of the Spirit. We can do this. And when we do, 2 Corinthians says that we are not only reflecting God's glory, but we are being transformed into it from one degree of glory to another so that we become eventually into the image of Jesus Christ. We were made for glory. The glory of being made new in Jesus Christ and one day being united forever to him in a world made new. This is our dream. We are at this moment standing at the edge of glory. The time in between the first and second comings of Christ. Tiffany called it the messy middle. And indeed it is. It surely is. But Jesus taught us to pray that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And implied in that prayer is the expectation that his followers would be deeply engaged in knowing and doing God's will even while we pray and wait on the edge of glory. It's messy for sure, but the way we keep the dream of glory alive is by living it. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Psalm 61.8 from the Message Translation, which says, I'll be the poet who sings your glory and live what I sing every day. As bright elects of Jesus Christ, we should be singing our hearts out, and we will in a minute. 
But worship is not just a song we sing. It is a life we live to the praise and glory of God. And so no matter what our present circumstances are, whether it's sunshine and roses or whether it's hardships and troubles and trials and disappointments and grief, we have a story to tell and we have a song to sing. And one day we will see it and we will hear it all from heaven's perspective and it will make sense and all we'll be able to say is glory. The Apostles and Nicene Creeds are like cliff notes to help us remember our song and to keep us rooted in God's story and our place in it. We believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, who in his great love and mercy provided for the forgiveness of our sins through Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who suffered innocently under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Jesus' death was the bride price our sins demanded. But Jesus rose again on the third day, the first fruits of all who would trust in him. And he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, interceding for us until the day he will return to make all things new. The church, the body and bride of Christ, now has the privilege and the responsibility of living in the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can declare the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the glory of the life to come. And we will do this until the glorious day when Jesus returns to rid the world of every form of evil, to destroy death forever, and to escort us into his new creation. As Michael Byrd writes, this is the Christian story, the church's story, the story we live by, the story which gets our amen. This is the story we sing about and proclaim until such a time when God's dwelling place is now among his people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Amen and amen. <laughs>